I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. I'm trying to figure out a way to describe what I'm going to be talking about tonight. It's uh, essentially, it's about how when we go through important life events, whether uh, breakups or engagements, moving, losing a job, getting a big opportunity, or any challenging experience, there's a natural human tendency to try to encapsulate the experience in a kind of a soundbite or a story that we can repeat to ourselves and repeat to other people that give uh, the experience a kind of meaning or a moral, something that we can sort of take away, that we can carry around in our head as a way to make sense of what has happened. And um, I'm going to talk about, on the one hand, why we do it, how very often it goes astray, ways we can actually develop a process for creating a kind of understanding of life's experiences that will be more accurate and more useful. So, I don't know, that's not very pithy, but we'll work with it. The Buddha taught that um, when we experience what he called dukkha, or suffering, stress, a, a disappointing, a setback, uh, there's a... to avoid feeling the emotional pain, what's called uh, dukkha vedana, uncomfortable feelings, we create views and opinions as a way to essentially keep the distress, the anxiety, the sadness, the grief, the anger at bay. The story becomes a kind of a false refuge from the embodied uh, result of important life experiences. You see, evolution developed two rather separate mental processing systems. In psychology, it's known as the dual processing theory. And we, of course, know that a large part of the dual processes that we have are due to the fact that we have twin hemispheres in our brain. We have a bilateral brain and working separately than most of us imagine. The thin neural thread that connects the two hemispheres, the corpus callosum, has over the course of evolution actually gotten thinner. We're actually less integrated. 95% of the processing that we do, some uh, cognitive neuroscientists propose it's even more, 97% of mental processing is what we would call automatic and unconscious. We go into any situation and context in our life using the right hemisphere and nonverbal parts of our brains, we create a kind of a gestalt, a large view of the setting. And we crunch a lot of different information very, very quickly behind the scenes of consciousness. As you walked into Dharmapunks tonight, especially if you hadn't been here before, you see all these beautiful-looking people and then this weird whatever this is at the front of the class. 
And you would have this essentially holistic view of the room, the body language, the sounds, and from all that, unconsciously, you uh, read also your body, which is feeding back information from the limbic parts of your brain, the fight, flight, freeze, or uh, other basic core drives. And so you're integrating the stimuli from the room, the emotional signals sent to other people non-verbally to you by looks, kind of body language, gestures, tone of voice, the somatic sensations from your body, and any previous experiences in your life that might remind you of going into a strange room with a lot of people you don't know. And you're doing all those calculations in the background. And then in a very brief, very short duration, your right hemisphere in conjunction with other automatic processes comes up with a conclusion. I'm safe, I can relax, I can open up to people, or these people look judgmental and scary, or I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here, and I'll close down and get tight. All of the conclusions that you reach in the automatic processes are nonverbal. They don't signal to you through thought. They're not coming up to you in language. The way you know you get the gist of it is through feelings, nonverbal experience. Your body gets tight or relaxed. You breathe in a relaxed, soft way. Or your, vo- your breath becomes very shallow. Your attention becomes unsettled or your attention becomes dull. You fog out. You begin to dissociate. Or maybe you relax and you open up to the environment. That's really what the bulk of mental processing is about. It's very, very fast. It's very, very efficient. And it's been honed by evolution. We have this processing in common with species that we develop from. So over the course of millions upon millions of years, it's become very accurate. But then, as a relatively recent add-on, about 3% of the processing, which is conscious, is devoted to representing experience in language, in words, in narratives, in ideas. This is, of course, uh, as we know from Gazzaniga's work and McGilchrist and so forth, that the left hemisphere is producing the interpretation the language-based, idea-based interpretation where we turn everything that we experience into a story. Now, these stories are very, very slow in developing. They are almost invariably an add-on after we come up with our impulses, our emotions, our behaviors. The story comes last. It, re- it doesn't play very much of a role in behavior. In fact, according to the research of Benjamin Labette and others, the only thing that conscious thought does is it can override or inhibit really, 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 really bad ideas. That's what your conscious mind does. It tells you a story about why you did the things you did. And once in a while, if you're really on top of your game and not too activated, stressed out, triggered, panicked, or anxious, 
it can say, holy shit, that's a really dumb idea. I'm not going to act out on that impulse. Yet we spend so much of our time in life dedicated to telling the story of our lives and the experiences of our lives. We really are very deeply enamored of it, especially if you can consider how much uh, efficacy thought actually has in human behavior, which is actually very little. We do spend so much time obsessively thinking, retelling, trying to figure out and encapsulate life in thought. Now, of course, thought can be useful. It can help us uh, succinctly if we're accurate. It can remind us and give us very simple rules to override certain choices that we made in the past that lead us to harm, that lead us to suffering. But a lot of times, the stories we rally around after disappointing or very emotionally charged events in life, the stories are deeply skewed. The morals and ideas and lessons we cull from life are very often very distorted, inaccurate, and actually cause even more suffering. So, why do we? Well, I'll give you some examples, by the way. Uh, when we come up with interpretations, they fall into the, what's called cognitive dissonance or cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are very familiar to us. Confirmation bias, which is when we have a sort of belief and then we look at the events of our lives and we filter it in such a way that it conforms or confirms our already pre-held belief. Such and such kind of people are good or bad. Relationships are not going to work out for me. I'm always at the bad end of luck or whatever. We have these beliefs and then we filter the events of life in such a way to conform and confirm those beliefs. And so we remain stuck in these very uh, limiting Views. Another uh, cognitive distortion is globalizing. We take a couple of limited experiences and we draw these massive conclusions. Well, <clears throat> I went on a vacation. It sucked. That'll teach me. <laughs> I dated a Canadian. Fuck that. I'll never date. Whatever. The biggest... Uh, skew the Buddha taught and the was uh, a Tiva Upadana or um, essentially a form of Diddy Upadana, which is per taking things personally. I'm there's something wrong with me. I'm broken in relationships, or I'm broken in working with other people, or there's something about me that uh, never gets any breaks, or uh, I'm somebody who's incapable of standing up for themselves, and that's the reason why I get disappointing, aggressive behavior exhibited towards me. So we, we come up with these personalizing 
our experience is about me, something about me, something in my personality, something in my core psyche. I'm being singled out. My experience is unique. We tend to gravitate towards trying to figure out what it all means and encapsulate experience into a very simple trope or phrase that we can repeat to ourselves and to others for a couple of reasons. One, while we're doing it, it represses the psychological suffering or excitement or discomfort. It, thinking is repressive. When we try to come up with a story or figuring out why things have occurred, while we're doing it, we are unconsciously essentially compartmentalizing the pain, the sadness, the distress, the anxiety, the discomfort, we're keeping it at bay. And Gazaniga's work showed this, that when the left hemisphere is firing away and broken, Wernicke's regions, which are churning out language, there tends to be a neural uh, disengagement. We cut out information coming from the insula, which tells us how our body is feeling, and that goes up to the right hemisphere, but we essentially say no. When we're in default mode network, thinking about ourselves and our life experiences, we are not aware of our bodies. And we're very often not even aware of the world around us. So it's a kind of dissociation even at times. There's examples of how I could give you off the top of my head of how awry this tendency can go. For instance, I don't know, suppose you do something that you feel guilty about. You snap, you uh, get angry and talk tersely, or uh, you shout at someone and then you find out it was uh, over a little duration of time. You realize, oh, shit, I can't believe I said that. So if we immediately try to turn it into a story, what will happen is two things. One, there'll be the views of self. Oh, shit, I'm constantly doing that. Why the fuck can't I control my anger? What's the matter with me? I.e., negative self-ideation. And then on the other hand, to fight those conclusions, we'll have self-justification. Well, they deserved it. They're an irritating person. I'm Somebody needed to tell them off. Even if I was wrong, they really... It, it was coming to them, or whatever. And so we go back and forth, and neither view is in any way instructional, informative, or useful. If we take the proper processes of processing the experience, then over time we realize, okay, rather than uh, vent when I feel uh, frustrated with someone, it probably is a good idea for me to talk about it with someone else and then get a sense of what would be a proportionate, appropriate response. Now there's a good life lesson for you. Far better than the immediate uh, conclusions that we might normally raise. Another example is we go through a breakup and uh, very often people will then be filled with resentment. And they'll think the stories about how little their partner put an effort in, or tried, or uh, in essence 
retell all the reasons why their their partner was uh, uh, it's be they're better off without that person. And of course, all those resentments don't really in any way uh, help us in the future. They don't uh, lead towards making smarter choices. If, on the other hand, we take the time to feel the feelings of sadness and disappointment, then the conclusion we might reach would be, well, I'm tired of putting my efforts into relationships where I'm choosing people who are unavailable. I have to learn how to spot people who are available, and that means I have to change my process. Well, that's a wonderful conclusion. So the first rule of setting or processing experience is that we have to feel experience before we think about it. Feeling is how, again, 95 or 97 percent of mental processing is talking to us and trying to tell us its conclusions. After a relationship ends or we lose a job or we get an exciting opportunity that requires moving, there's going to be in our bodies, in our breath, in our uh, feelings, in our emotional states, such as sadness, anger, excitement, disgust, and so forth, there will be very... Oops, I put my mic over there. Uh, there'll be messages being sent to us by the right orbital frontal of the brain, and those messages are very, very important. And if we take the time to actually feel the emotions rather than trying to turn it into a story, then what we can do is integrate the emotional or the affects that are being sent to us and you might not be aware of this, but all emotions are trying to send messages to us. Anger is trying to tell us to set boundaries or to confront injustice. If after an experience where we repress our anger by thinking about resentments, we cut off the anger and therefore we just keep the focus on the individual rather than the more global concerns that our anger should be pointed towards and help us set boundaries in our life. Furthermore, if we cut off with while thinking, if we cut off the emotional messages or signals that are, are essentially waiting for our attention to be processed, that's how they get processed, not only through connecting but also for, through being felt, then those emotions become latent, which means they don't just go away. Wouldn't that be nice if after every sad or frightening experience, the fear, sadness, or anger just magically disappeared because we thought a lot and watched a lot of Stranger Things on Netflix. As I think we are all aware by now that what happens is when we repress, for example, anger, we deflect it onto other individuals who are often entirely innocent. We take it out on convenient targets. <laughs> I love teaching here. 
And people actually who listen to the podcast tell me how much they love the sounds of New York. <laughs> this is just a little bit much. I mean... <laughs> All right, I'm going to forge along because it seems like I could be here all night with that ambulance. Um, another thing that happens when we cut off the feelings, the embodied somatic physiological state of being that is arising and is a message sent from the automatic processes of the brain, uh, is that we very often wind up masking emotions with other less suitable emotions. If after an experience where it would, we are frustrated in a relationship, disappointed, but instead we get derailed by resentment towards an ex, then the resentment might very well trigger a secondary masking uh, affect, which would be anger. And the anger will simply lead us in the wrong direction in terms of a conclusion about the relationship. It'll, we'll start telling ourselves, well, that'll teach me for this or that. If we, on the other hand, want to make significant changes in how we pick partners, we first have to feel the primary emotion, which is sadness. So, uh, also, for instance, we very often, after a sad experience, turn it into self-pity, which furthers the cognitive distortion of personalizing, taking experience that happens very often to, is almost universal, but we take it as something personal, and that prohibits coming up with a clear understanding step-by-step step of how to proceed. Now, the second thing to bear in mind in processing is that it takes time. For all the emotions and unconscious processes to work through, they, emotions don't just, and uh, affects, feelings don't just arise and pass like a nice narrative. They get triggered, they go away, and then we see something that reminds us of an ex, or we see a restaurant where we used to go to with an ex, or we, uh, if we're moving, we might see a place that we like to go to in our old neighborhood, and that makes us feel sad. So the emotions get triggered, and they take time to be processed. It's a process of emergence and flow and getting over something and then being re-triggered and... There's this proce process in certain uh, Jewish, uh, I, I think, traditions where after a loss, there's a year of grieving. And that makes enormous psychological sense because over the course of a year, there'll be all these landmarks, holidays, events, times of years that will re-trigger emotions. And if you want to come to grips and understand and process through grief, you have to go through all of those triggers before there will be a sense of clarity, a sense of a way to integrate the loss into your life. And it takes a long time for the right hemisphere, a lot of experiences, for it to learn. The left hemisphere 
even though it's slow to process, it can change very quickly. If you thought all your life that the Empire State Building was on 50th, 50th Street, should be strange, but if I told you, no, it's on 33rd or 32nd, I don't even know, I lived here all my life, but anyway, you'd go, oh, okay, you could change that information in your head very quickly. But if you were uh, essentially through early childhood experience taught to chase after unavailable partners and relationships, guess what? <laughs> that process of undoing that will take five to ten years if you're lucky. <laughs> I know, that's, I work in counseling and, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> well, sometimes it's faster. <laughs> so, uh, all right, so it takes time. We have to feel the feelings. And finally, meaning is collaborative. It's co-created with others. It's based on disclosing our emotional experience to others in a safe environment, where in a safe container, where a friend will listen and not interrupt and not tell us what to do and not be judgmental and not uh, essentially pull away. They'll just listen. They'll be patient. And through their right hemispheric affects, which we read with our right hemisphere, we're reading while we talk, and they're listening to our words with the left. The right is drinking in our body language, our tone of voice, our facial expressions, our, you know, our postures. And all of that information is helping us process a really painful experience. The very first thing that happens when we talk about a painful event in life is when another person mirrors the emotion of sadness or frustration, we immediately begin to get that we're not alone. We start relating to the experience no longer as, why did this happen to me? There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm fucked up. I always, I'm, you know... I always pick the wrong people, I shouldn't trust others, whatever. We start realizing, oh, this is actually not about me. And therefore, I don't have to just give up, because if it's a global statement about me, there's really very little I can do. I can't change my entire psyche or self. But if we realize this is a universal experience that all people have, paradoxically, that allows me to address it. Because it's no longer I'm stuck with it due to something about me. It's something that other people know about. So the only way we come to this deeply profound understanding that allows us to reframe and <clears throat> view our experience from a less personal, charged perspective is by talking about it. In one of the most moving stories in the Buddhist canon, Kisa Gautami, who... <clears throat> wound up being one of the most uh, important members of the Buddhist community. She was a very, very, she's one of the first nuns and uh, Buddhist nuns. And uh, a lot of really wonderful teachings are attributed to her. Before she was a nun, she uh, she was impoverished and she had a son and she used all of the little money she had to uh, clothe and take care of and educate her child. And as these stories go in the canon, the child got bit by a snake and died. The canon has a lot of really sort of 
sad, over the top. Couldn't you have just made him ill? But no. Uh, so the, she's carrying around her dead child. There's a happy image for you. And uh, going from one spiritual teacher to another, asking for this dramatic event to be undone. In other words, repressed, get rid of, how can I not feel this pain? And finally, after seeing one teacher after another, uh, they foist her upon the Buddha. And the Buddha takes a completely different tact. He said, I can change the way this entire experience feels and what you're going through if you can bring me three mustard seeds from a family that has not experienced loss. So she, now in ancient India, mustard seeds were very common. It's about as common as asking for three grains of salt or something like that. It's their basic spice. So she was very optimistic. She goes down to the first house in this, the city of Varanasi, I believe it was. <clears throat> and she asks, she knocks on the door and she tells the people that the Buddha will change what happened if they can give her three mustard seeds. And they say, of course, we'll give you as many mustard seeds as you want. And then she would say, but there's one catch. Uh, I can't, it has to be from a family that has not lo known loss or grief. And of course, one household after another, after another, after another says, well, we just lost our grandma or our father or our aunt or our sister or our brother or a child. And so as she does this, searching from house to house, the personal, the taking it personally is alleviated so she can feel the grief, the core emotion, without draping it in the why me? Why did this happen to me? She can just experience the loss. The loss gets processed, and then she can turn that loss into a real lesson. And her lesson was... I have to do something that will help others with my life. If I can't give my love and my support to my child, I have to give it to others. So she joins the Buddhist lineage and becomes one of the first nuns. So, to put it in the words of Alan Shore, one of the great contemporary psychologists of our age, well, that's redundant, contemporary of our age. He's alive now, okay? Uh, in contrast to the prevailing privilege status that we give to verbal conscious thought, emotional communication between one individual and another lie at the absolute core of healing. Clinical research shows the more experience, emotional experience and expression is facilitated, the more that patients exhibit positive change in life. So feeling and expressing communicating, signaling the emotions. If we do that, then the conclusions we reach are far more accurate because we've actually processed the events of our lives. So let's do some processing in our meditation. <clears throat> so either closing the eyes or finding a really comfortable position with your eyes looking down at the ground in front of you, 
And it's a really good idea to try to keep your head in line with your shoulders, in line with your hips or buttocks. And uh, a really good practice is to gently tilt your head a little bit back or keep your chin up a little higher than normal, which prevents your head from slouching in front of your chest. And that actually makes it easier to sustain. While we might naturally slouch over time, that makes it more difficult to relax because there's all this strain in the neck muscles. So try to cultivate the feeling of arriving at a place, a destination you've been seeking. Um, that feeling of when you traveled for a long time, you've gotten off the plane, you've taken a car ride, and then you reach a really secluded place that's really quite beautiful and you put down your bags and you settle into a really comfortable seat and you realize you don't have to do anything now. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to present anything to another human being. So you can just be completely natural. You can take off the social mask and just allow yourself to be without needing to make anybody like you or look busy or get anything done. A feeling of arriving at a destination. So right now, in this moment, you've arrived at your destination. So let's do three simple procedures that help us do this, and we're taking advantage of some core processes in the limbic structure when we do this. So take a full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up. Hold them up, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop them, and gently pull them back as you drop them so that you open up your chest. And that's part of the dorsal vagal nerve, which is very key to signaling how the body feels to the brain. Now, second in breath, pulling in the abdomen, the abdominal muscles, just really tight. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. And that's the second primary area of the dorsal vagal nerve. And that, again, reports to your brain that you're safe by relaxing the chest and belly. And then the third breath, squinching the muscles in the face, tightening the jaw, squeezing the eyes, even making fists and squinching your toes, tight, 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 and then breathe out. Relaxing the jaw, softening the micro-muscles around the eyes. And that's your ventral vagal nerve. Facial muscles. So you've just sent a message to 
your amygdala telling you that you're okay, you're safe, you can relax, you're not under attack. And you can continue this process by making sure the in-breaths are long and smooth and complete, and then as you release the breath, don't push it out, just release it. That's as long as the, or even longer than the in-breath. A really long out-breath is very important as well. So for the silent part of the meditation, what I'd like you to do is select any object you'd like, which will serve as your anchor. Your anchor is the sensation that you keep in mind and that settles the mind. It actually puts us in what's called task positive mode, which is very pleasant and very relaxing. So it takes a while to develop this skill. A suitable anger might be the sensations of breathing, either at the tip of the nose or in the body, especially the chest or the belly, feeling sensations of expansion and contraction. If you don't want to work with the breath, you could work with sounds, and this is a wonderful space for that, just hearing the sounds emanating from the street below. Arriving to sensory awareness, and then passing. Try to hear without adding any visual of what's creating a sound or any opinions about the sound. In other words, listening like you might listen to a soundtrack or a piece of music that comprised concrete sounds, rather than taking sounds for granted, appreciate the experience of hearing that actually tends to broaden the awareness. Or finally, you could use a very simple phrase repeating 
a very peaceful message over and over again, perhaps time to the breath or not, a message such as, may I be happy and peaceful, may all beings be happy and peaceful. Try not to focus on the words, it's actually the emotions, the tone of voice associated with the way you whisper these thoughts in your mind that actually is effective. What will certainly happen is your mind will be lured away from your anchor, the breath, sounds, your repeated phrase. The default mode network is very compelling. The mind likes to be drawn towards thought as a way not to feel and be present and just experience prefers thoughts which feel controllable. So, during your meditation, when that happens, just gently note, add no judgment, frustration, impatience, it happens to everyone. And just guide your awareness back to the present, the breath, the sounds. Like you might guide a child that wandered away from a safe picnic into a area of the park that might not be as secure. So you don't add any judgment. You just gently guide the child back. The same with your awareness. Practicing developing calmness and patience and compassion with yourself. Even if your mind keeps slipping away, just developing patience and self-compassion is worthwhile enough for any meditation and as a result of your practice.
So at this time you can allow the anchor to still be present, but now not in the front of the stage in your mind. Just allow it to drift slightly into the backstage. And I'd like you to conjure up an image of an important experience that has happened recently. It would be especially useful if this was associated with another individual person. That's often helpful in this exercise. So, but either way, just visualize with as much detail a triggering or important or exciting moment. With as much visual detail as you can. So if it was a conflict or meeting someone that might be a relational prospect, just hold the individual's image in mind with some of the context, the place that is most resonant. And just in a very simple descriptive phrase, without adding any story to it, just label the experience, meeting someone, losing a job, ending a relationship with, and just hold the image and gently repeat the label And hopefully, if the image is resonant enough, they'll start to appear in the body a subtle feeling, perhaps in the throat, the belly, the chest, the muscles in the face. Sometimes it takes a bit of practice because we live very often so unaware of our emotional affects. So you might have to be patient or continue to try a different label, loss, connection, disappointment, holding the image, and then check again into the body. A good place to start might be the breath. Does your breath change? Does it become more labored, more relaxed, more shallow? Do you start to feel any any small contraction? This is your felt experience. This is how so much of the mental processes of your mind try to communicate with you. 
And sadly, we often spend so much of our lives running from so much of the vital messages we're being sent. You don't have to figure out what the feelings mean. Just be with them. Just incorporate them into your awareness of the event. And if nothing arises, try another image or another label. Just be patient. If you don't feel anything in the body, you might notice a change in your state of awareness. Your attention might become jumpy or contracted or you might suddenly feel tired or anxious or excited. So now let go of the image and I'd like you to bring to mind someone who you trust, someone who feels safe, someone who you believe really listens to you when you talk. We just try to visualize that person with as much detail, really seeing them in your mind. Visualizing a soft, welcoming expression on their face. An expression that makes you feel safe and connected. And looking at this person in your mind, just say very simply, I feel sad, happy, angry, disappointed. Don't try to figure out the emotion. Just say the first emotion that comes to mind. You could whisper it in your mind. I feel angry, sad, lost, lonely. And then, again, try... Again, with another thing you'd like to express, I feel, I'm worried that, or my greatest fear is, and just let whatever comes to mind without thinking about it, just allow whatever comes to mind to be expressed to this person. I'm worried that, I'm scared of, 
Now let go of this person's image and finally bring to mind an image of yourself at any age, whatever image of yourself comes to mind. And just very softly repeat, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. As far as takeaways from experience, that's probably the most vital thing we can learn. I love you, keep going. So, gently letting go of the image of yourself, and whenever you're ready, slowly open your eyes enough to see the ground in front of you and integrate sight into the feelings you've connected with so that you don't allow sight to push away the body, the emotions you've connected with. And keeping whatever embodied awareness you've cultivated, bring it with you for the rest of the evening.